our, um, our Bible text this morning. I want to take us to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 20 through 28. Just prior to the section, the Apostle Paul has been making a case for the resurrection. He's been uh, proving that Jesus Christ is alive. Um, and we get to really hear him explaining um, some things about the resurrection. So uh, in your own Bibles, where you are in your homes, uh, I encourage you to follow along in the scripture this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, and we'll end at 28. Hear God's word. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in its own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in, subjected, in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is God's word. I invite you to pray with me. Uh, we're going to ask for the Spirit's help. Uh, Lord, uh, your word, um, we know, is living, it's active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword. Your word is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. Your word is our daily bread. Really, we don't live by bread alone, but by everything you say. And Lord, your word is to be preached. And so I pray that in this time of proclaiming your word, that your spirit would be pleased to use this to drive truth into our hearts. Father, we want to exalt Jesus in this. We want your will to be done in this. We want you to bring new life out of this. We want you to form in us the character of Jesus. Lord, none of that can be done by a mere man. We need to hear from you. Let it be so. And we ask it for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you've watched the news this week, it's amid the, the constant barrage of bad news related to the pandemic, you will have heard stories uh, from religious leaders about the importance of Holy Week and, and how people of faith rest on their beliefs to get them through hard times. Now, there's news reporters also trying to deal with this, and they're doing their best to, to be impartial. They dispassionately uh, report the facts, and the things that they say are largely sentimental. Uh, 
it's lovely that you believe in the resurrection. I'm, I'm glad that helps you. Of course, other hearing the same news or speaking about it, um, the, the fact that this is Holy Week, Jews are celebrating the Passover and Christians, the resurrection of Jesus. Others have a pagan view of this time of year. They see, they see the resurrection as a kind of a symbol of new life. The earth died, or at least it became dormant through the harsh months of winter. And now, now it springs to life, right? There's um, the leaves on the trees, the buds are coming out, the flowers start to come, the lilies come up from the ground, bunnies prodigiously reproducing chocolate eggs, you know, things like that. Now, but of course, the Christian view in all of this, and this is the, the true view, that takes the historical fact that Jesus actually died and that he actually bodily rose to life again. We hold on to that. That's what we're celebrating today. But I would suggest to you that even Christians undervalue it. So we get the basic understanding that, that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the, that that's that central truth that secures our salvation, without which we would be fools. Paul says that in this passage prior to what I read. We're just, we'd be fools if we, if we were following Jesus who is still dead. We'd be fools to believe any of this. We'd be fools to be reading our Bibles. We'd be fools if Christ is not raised. But indeed, he has been raised. So we get that truth that, that his resurrection uh, ensures and secures our eternal salvation. But there is so much more. There's a, a rich cosmic significance in God's glorious plan and purpose to send his son into the world. And a plan, this plan, was in God's mind before the creation of the universe. And that's what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on the accomplishments of the resurrection of Jesus, the son of God, from the grave. That's what I'm going to focus on this morning. And so my aim, my aim as you hear and watch where you are, my aim is that you would revel, that you would marvel, that you would delight, that you would exult in how glorious it is because that's what the Apostle Paul is showing us in this passage. So I want to talk about this morning the, the accomplishments of the resurrection. I'll just take, I've got three and I'll just give them to you in order. Um, the first accomplishment of the resurrection, and this is the obvious one. We will be raised. We will be raised. Now, my daughter Haley, I think, was the first of our kids to ask for a pet. And I wasn't much for pets at the time, but we got a hamster. She named him Wallace. Now, after a brief mishap of discovering our boy hamster having little hamsterettes and trading her into the pet store, we got Wallace too, um, a genuine male. Now, I don't know how long we had Wallace. Haley, you could kind of give me that time frame, I guess, but... I don't know that we were very good at taking care of Wallace. He got out a few times. He was, his life was imperiled. And I don't know how long, like I said, we had him, but, but as it goes, Wallace eventually died. We buried him under a memorial stone that Haley made on 153 Chudley Street in Waterdown. And there he remains, or whatever's left of him. Now, I, I don't remember this very well, and I'm sure Haley was sad, but I don't remember, I don't remember her pleading with me I think she was old enough to get it at the time. I don't remember her pleading with me to make him undead. We didn't make the hamster undead. She accepted his death, and I think she simply assumed it was irreversible. Now, science has discovered many, many things, and under God's common grace, I have no doubt, I have no doubt that immunologists will eventually come up for a, with a vaccine for this, this deadly strain of coronavirus. 
But one thing that science will never figure out, and that's because it's outside of the realm of science, is life itself. So in a limited way, we, we humans, we can preserve, we can protect, we can prolong life, and unfortunately, we can neglect and even destroy life, but we cannot, cannot create it. Now, I know some will pay a lot of money, and they have to this point, to have their bodies frozen at their own time of death in the, in the future or the hope that in the future some scientific discovery will come along and be able to revive them unlocking the mystery of life. But that's a fool's errand. Impossible for us to control life. But for God, for God, nothing is impossible. Nothing at all. And because he is life, Jesus says this about his own life. Listen to these words from John 10. About his life, Jesus says, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now in this passage, in our passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul begins with that central fact. A fact that he has just proved to be true. That Christ died for our sins. That he rose again on the third day. And that he was viewed by upwards of 500 witnesses. So in light of that truth about Jesus, here's what Paul wants to do. Here's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And as we take this in, he wants us to understand the present, the past, and the future implications of that truth for us that Jesus has risen. Here's the present implication. Verse 20. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, that might seem a little uh, cryptic, the language there. Uh, Fallen asleep, he's referring to those who have died, those who have died believing in Jesus. And he uses that term fall asleep because there will be a rising again. So it's not a permanent state. You lose your life mortally in Christ, you die, you come to life again. So Paul talks of it as a sleep. Those are those who believe in Jesus. And he's also including that, those who are yet to die before Christ returns at the end. Now that he speaks of uh, Christ has been raised, the first fruits, the first fruits. That first fruits refers back to, uh, if you're taking notes, you can jot down Leviticus 23.10, Old Testament reference. And really what the first fruits were was an offering to the Lord. It was a harvest offering. You take the first part, which was representative of the whole. So the whole thing belongs to the Lord. You offer the first fruits. So it's representative. And so Paul is using that imagery saying that Jesus' bodily resurrection from the grave is a sort of a a pledge or a representation of all those who belong to him, those who have fallen asleep. That is, those who have died. Now, unless Jesus returns in our lifetime, we will die. Sooner or later. But because Jesus was raised, we can and we ought to live in each each day in the confidence of of knowing that Jesus represented all who trusted in him. He represents you in his resurrection if you have trusted in him. And his resurrection guarantees yours. That's the present. Now there's the past. And the Apostle Paul brings in Adam, okay? He explains why Jesus can represent us by going back to the past. He goes back to the beginning. 
Verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. And I'll stop there. In Adam all die. You see, what happened was Adam represented all of mankind when he was created. He represented all of us. Now, theologians call him, uh, or or at least call his, his role, a kind of a federal head. Don't worry about what that term is, but that's just kind of a category for understanding this. So what happened was when Adam disobeyed God, we, in Adam, as his progeny, as his offspring, we, in him, were condemned to death because of his sin. And not only that, Adam introduced into the human race this irresistible propensity to sin. We get this. We feel this. And that's our default position. In Psalm 51, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's speaking of this this, uh, uh, destruction that happened because of our first parent. We were conceived in sin. And so because of Adam's sin, we inherit a sin nature. And because of that sin nature, we ourselves also sin. It took only one man to introduce death into all of humanity. Now, you might not think that that's fair. And I get it. You might not think that's fair. Condemned because of Adam's sin? Well, the fact remains that even though we are counted guilty in Adam, none of us are guiltless on our own. We actually sin. Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all all men. Why? Because all sinned. So what this means is that if, if, here's the condition, here's how this works, here's how the the, the economy of it all works, if the guilt of Adam spreads to all by the one, that is Adam, then, and here's the beauty of this, then all the benefits of being in the one true Christ, being in him, that is by faith in him, those benefits are credited to every believer. So here it is. We don't need an individual savior for everyone. Jesus takes over from Adam and becomes our representative. Hebrews 10.10. We have been sanctified, that is made holy, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All. Every last one of us who are in Christ And so because Jesus died and because he rose from the grave, we who believe get this benefit of being counted righteous in God's sight. That's by faith in Jesus. And then the benefit of that right standing before God is the gift, a promise to be sure, a gift of full and complete restoration, The promise of a new and incorruptible, indestructible, unsinnable, undiable, made up those words, body, just like Jesus has since he emerged from the tomb. But not yet. So Paul explains. Here's the future piece. Verse 22. So in Christ so also in Christ shall all be made alive, shall. But each in its own order. Christ, the first fruits, that has happened. Then it is coming, those 
And it is coming those who belong to Christ. Now, now most of us will die of old age. But right now, even the youngest, most vibrant among us feels the the frailty of our bodies, right? The common cold, the, the flu, other viral and bacterial infections, tumors, heart disease, diabetes, leukemia. And then on top of all of that, we know that there are dangers from falling off your bicycle and hitting your head or crashing your motorcycle. I feel that when every time I, I worry about that every time I get on my motorcycle or crashing your car or a tornado wiping out your house and causing mortal injury. These things are, are real. We are, we are not indestructible bodies. Things outside of us, the maliciousness of another person can take our lives away. So when Jesus returns, and this is at the end, then we are clothed with new bodies, and that's the amazing thing. Now, what are those bodies for? The the accomplishment of the resurrection of Jesus is that we get these new bodies. What are those bodies for? I was reading in an article last week, someone was describing his conversion from Mormonism to genuine Christian faith. And what the author was doing was explaining how Mormons use the same terms as Christians but often have different meanings. Now, one of the most significant things, I don't want to get into all of that, but one of the most significant things uh, that he pointed out was the thing that turned him away from Mormonism was their vision of last things, their view of the afterlife. Their view of the afterlife, the Mormon view, was having your wife and kids by your side forever. You see, they view Jesus as the means to some other eternal reward. True faith in Jesus does not regard Jesus as the means to some other reward, even a body. Jesus is the eternal reward. There is no eternal life apart from Christ. There is no aspect of eternal life that is apart from Christ. And if you imagine an eternity in your new resurrected body where Jesus has nothing to do with it, let me say this. You're not a believer in Jesus. If your vision of the afterlife is all of the things that you will do and Christ has no part of this, you're not going to be raised. Verse 22 says, In Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ by faith. Now in Christ present with him forever. Never not present with Christ So as believers in Jesus, get this, we will never, in our new bodies, we will never, ever, ever, forever be apart from Christ. He is our eternal hope. He is our eternal reward because Christ himself is our life. And so what does that hope do for us now? Well, it gives us peace now. It gives us the hope of the glory of God now. It gives us endurance through suffering like we're experiencing now. It's the character of Christ formed in us now. Paul says this, Romans 5, 1 to 5. I want to read this whole section. Listen. Listen in light of the resurrection of Jesus. Listen. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, 
we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, this is what is accomplished in us because Jesus Christ is raised. And what we now do, what we now do is rest in this truth. And we can look forward to these eternal blessings in Christ because Christ has been raised. Well, the second accomplishment of the resurrection I want to focus on is this. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is victorious. Uh, now, if you were watching uh, on Friday to our live stream, Josh painted a picture of Jesus suffering in our place. He painted that picture very vividly. Now, as he explained, and, and as I took it, and as I was thinking about this, to mo most of the watching world, Jesus was mercilessly mocked and tortured and executed and he had all of that public shame heaped upon him. It was pretty much an ordinary execution day for Roman centurions. And as Josh described, that they, after the event, they probably went home and played with their children. And for most of the inhabitants of Jerusalem observing this, even many that followed Jesus, even those that, uh, that were marveled at his mighty works, the last, they turned against him when the religious leaders stirred them up. And they concluded, well, he was just another hopeless, hapless, wannabe Messiah. Jesus gave up his last breath and his body was laid in a tomb. That was Friday. But then came Sunday. Jesus walked out of that tomb. And this is the thing that we celebrate. Brothers and sisters, this is the glorious truth that we celebrate. And Jesus, over several weeks, as Paul explained earlier in this chapter, over several weeks, he showed himself to the disciples, to, to upwards of 500 people. He is alive. Christ is risen indeed. We know that he lives. This is the cornerstone of our faith. But most people do not believe it. Even when Jesus rose to life, he showed himself to 500, but Jesus did not show himself to the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He did not show himself to the priests. He did not show himself to Pilate or Herod. Now, no doubt that these had heard the testimony of Jesus' apostles and other witnesses that he was alive, but they scoffed at that. They remained unbelieving, and the unbelieving world looking upon Jesus not believing that he rose. To them, it looked like defeat. Pharisees, the religious leaders, got their way. They defeated Jesus. Now, I would say today, today, even today, Jesus is viewed by the world as someone who is at best. And again, not Christians. Christians, we get who he is. But I'm saying the non-Christian world who hear the story of the resurrection, who hear, who don't believe it, who know about his death, they view him as, a, as, at best, a misunderstood individual. And he is venerated to some degree in the world. 
but only so because he is hailed as some kind of tragic hero. And we might ask, where's the parade? Where's the recognition? Where's the vindication for Jesus? Where's that? Well, there's a lot that we cannot see with our eyes. And here the Holy Spirit, in this passage of Scripture, he saw fit to give us a glimpse of what is to come through the Apostle Paul, the vindication and victory of Jesus. We pick it up at verse 23 of our text. It says, At his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. Now, what Paul is doing here, he's telling us about the parade. That's how I put it. It's the vindication march of Jesus. At the end, he will take this creation, this whole thing, this restored kingdom, and he's going to bring it in a sense, present it to the Father, mission complete. Sin corrupted it, Jesus fixed it. The cost Jesus bore alone. The cost was the rejection of him by his own. The cost was him being misunderstood, the slandering he took, the public shaming, his life given up. At the end, Jesus will have restored the whole creation. And he will make it even better than it was before. And all those who belong to Christ, all we who belong to Christ... Those who have longed for his appearing, we who truly believe, we get to join in this victory parade. That's the end. But before that happens, there are some important, thing, important things you want to take note of. Verse 24, after, so that's the end, but just before that, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. You see, right now, right now, Jesus reigns. At the end of his, after he was raised, and he showed himself to the disciples and many others over a period of many days, he eventually was lifted up before their eyes to heaven. The Bible says he ascended. He ascended. Now, that didn't just mean he physically went up. He actually took a place at the Father's right hand. He ascended to his throne. This is what the psalmist prophesied. Psalm 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That right hand of the Father, that place where Jesus is today, he is there and he is now and continues to be about the task of gathering his own subjects, his own people, the ones he's redeemed by his own blood, he is gathering them together in the church and through the collective witness of all of us who believe, the church, we make him known to the world by telling his good news, the gospel. We're told here, the Apostle Paul says that he is going to subject every rule and power. This is what is happening now. So what is this that Jesus is destroying? Who are the enemies that become his footstool? Well, that's the serpent who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. It is Satan, call him the devil, Beelzebub, the adversary, the one who, as the Apostle Peter says, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is the, the, the one who masquerades as an angel of light. 
He is tempting and trying, duping and destroying. He is the one who corrupts and pollutes. He sows seeds of greed and pride and lust. And each of us, we know it. We have each succumbed at times to that power. Pursuing fleshly cravings, our own self-righteousness, the gossip, the selfishness, the unforgiveness, the revenge, the slander, assuming the worst in others, judging motives, boasting, arrogance, abusive words and actions, and we could go over the list of sins. Jesus died to rescue us from that. And just as it was told to Eve after she sinned, her offspring, referring to Jesus, he would have his heel bruised by the serpent, by the devil, by the adversary. Jesus was bruised for our iniquities at the cross, our sins. But Jesus emerged from that tomb on the third day, stepping out of the darkness of that tomb, stepping onto the head, as as it were, of the serpent, issuing a fatal blow. Now, now Jesus is on a war path to destroy Satan and all of his demonic minions. And he proves it. He proves it by rescuing us, his own people, from the grip of sin. And every time someone hears the gospel, it's another nail in the coffin of Satan. Progressively, each time someone turns to Christ in repentance and faith, Satan's power is being destroyed. And at the end, Jesus will cast the devil into the lake of fire. And then his power to destroy will finally be destroyed. Verse 26 of our text. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That curse of death will finally be neutralized. Never, never again to wreak havoc on creation. And what, what a glorious day that will be. Jesus' victory over that last enemy, the one that takes us to the grave. I want you to listen to how the Apostle John, he has a vision, and it's recorded in Revelation. The Lord Jesus gives him a vision. Here's how he describes Jesus triumphing over his enemies. I want you to hear this and, and exult in this. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will be vindicated and the victor. So when that day comes, let me ask you, who will you be standing with? 
Whose side will you be on? Philippians 2, Paul says there, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let me ask you, will you bow with the joy of seeing Jesus vindicated? Or will you bow with the horror of knowing that you rejected him? There is no passivity. You must decide. The third accomplishment of the resurrection. God is glorified. Now this happens to me all the time. I might go from the kitchen down to the laundry room. I'll pick up a bag of trash in the way, put it out in the bin outside, and then get to the laundry room and I'll stand there. I'll forget why I wanted to go there in the first place. I stand there thinking, what am I doing? Um, Was I getting a tool? Was I getting something from the pantry shelf? Was I restocking the toilet paper in the bathroom? What's the point? Why am I here? Now, it's possible as Christians, sometimes we go along in our lives enjoying the the immediate blessings of being a child of God, and we should. Secured for us in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, and, and we delight and we should in the forgiveness of sin, the freedom from sin's power. We get to enjoy the fellowship of other believers, even while physically distancing And then we forget the point. The point isn't primarily us. It's the glory of God. That's the point. Verses 27 and 28 are a little challenging, but I want to explain them. Verse 27, it says, God has put all things in subjection under his feet, his feet being Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he accepted who put all things in subjection under him. A little bit confusing, perhaps. So here's what happened. God the Father put everything created under the Son. But he accepted, he excluded himself. The Father isn't in subjection to the Son. And why is that important? Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, that is the Son, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. That's the point. That God may be all in all. The Son has always been in subjection, in submission to the Father. So what's the the point that the Apostle is making here? By the authority of God, Jesus has been put over every created thing. And when creation, when everything in creation acknowledges Jesus' authority, then it will be seen to all creation that the Son has always been doing exactly what the Father has given him to do. And the purpose of it is that God may be all in all, meaning that it is known throughout all creation that it was always from the beginning, it was always about the glory of God. That is the point. Our salvation is about the glory of God. Jesus going to the cross, dying for our sins and rising again is about the glory of God. 
Knowing this, knowing this, we who belong to Christ, we who have been rescued from the grip of sin and death, we who long for Christ to return, knowing this, we want to bring glory to God now. See, the resurrection should cause us to do that. Glory to God. Christ is raised, yes, glory to God. So how do we want to glorify God in light of the resurrection? Well, it shows, our desire for God's glory shows when we are eager to gather with God's people to give Him praise. Well, we're eager to do that. And I trust where you are in your homes, you're longing for the day that you're not thinking that this is, oh, we can continue with, no. This is not what we want long term. We want to be together in this room. And Christians around the world, you want to gather with your local church, wherever you are. You want to hear the voices. Yes, you want to touch the person next to you who is a brother or sister in Christ. You want to enjoy the fellowship of being with God's people, declaring together the glory and majesty and power and dominion and awesomeness of Jesus all to the glory of God the Father. Desiring to have God's glory on display, it shows when we serve others in the name of Jesus. It shows when we, when we want to tell people that we have been rescued from the kingdom of darkness and have been brought into the kingdom of light. Why? Because God was so, so very gracious to send his son into the world to die for us. Desiring the glory of God shows when we, when we love one another with the love that God has shown to us, even the point of self-sacrifice. You see, wanting, wanting to bring glory to God, this is the one of the true marks of being a true believer in Jesus. So let me ask you, do you want to bring glory to God? Is that your heart? Well, what has the resurrection accomplished? Well, the obvious one, you will be raised. And so if you're in Christ, if you've truly believed in him, when he returns, you will be raised. You will get a glorified body like his in order to have perfect, unhindered, uninterrupted, infinitely, increasingly joyful fellowship with God forever. That's what you'll get. The resurrection accomplished Jesus' victory. All creation will know it. The enemy, the enemy of our souls will be cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus will present the restored kingdom that includes us to the Father. He'll say, here it is, perfected. In the end of all of that, God will be glorified. And if you are in Christ, you want that and you long for that day. Now let me ask you, and you need to ask yourself, do the benefits of Jesus' resurrection, does what Jesus accomplished 
and raising from the dead. Does that apply to you? You need to be asking yourself that question this morning. So you can't claim it for yourself without submitting to the conditions. And here are the conditions. And it's not what you might think. You're not being asked to fix yourself up to make yourself presentable. You're not being asked to have a certain number of achievements. It doesn't work that way. What you need to do to receive the eternal benefits of the fact that Jesus died and rose again, you need to come humbly before God, acknowledging that your sin is a capital offense against Almighty God. Acknowledge that. Express your heartfelt desire to leave it all behind and look to Jesus, the Son of God, Look to him on that cross. See him die there with the eyes of faith. See that he did that so that your sin could be fully paid for. Trust that he did that for you. And if you have trusted in that, and if you have believed in who Jesus is, that he is the son of God, that he died in your place and that he rose again. If you believe that, humbly, you will be counted as a child of God. Going forward, that's going to change everything in your life. The sin that you used to love, the Bible is going to confront you and you're going to want to leave that behind. It'll be slow at times. But you'll be confronted with things that are unholy and unrighteous. And you'll confess them. And you'll ask God for the strength not to do them again. And he will give you that strength. Why? Because Jesus broke the power of sin and you will know it. And as you live the rest of your life, if you have a few days or 80 years or more, As you live the rest of your days, you will be living in the anticipation of the glorious return of Jesus in victory. When he gives you that new body and you can fully and finally and forever enjoy personal fellowship with God. Where do you stand? Where do you stand? Brothers and sisters in Christ, you know where you stand. You're waiting for his appearing.